changemakers. You see them all around you. They're in your communities, your schools, your workplace. They do powerful things and they make change happen. In this series, we interview the many changemakers who built up their policy toolkits at Princeton and went on to change their communities. These are their stories. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Changemakers. Larry Handerhan serves as Chief of Staff for the D.C. Department of Human Services. Previously, he was a Senior Advisor to the Deputy Secretary at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Before that, he served in HUD's Office for International and Philanthropic Innovation, where he was a 2012 Presidential Management Fellow. Prior to joining HUD, Larry worked for then-Mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom, and the California Democratic Party. He also served as a team leader in AmeriCorps, where he spent several months assisting Gulf Coast communities affected by Hurricane Katrina. Larry received a bachelor's degree from Bates College and an MPA from the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Welcome to the show, Larry. Thanks, Rose. I'm so happy to be here. So maybe you can catch our listeners up to speed a little bit on what you've been up to since you graduated, which was 2012, if I'm right. Yeah, 2012. It's been about eight and a half years, although in COVID time, which is when we're recording this, it feels like maybe that was 20 years ago. Oh, I know. Sure. So I, when I graduated, you know, it was a great economy. There were a lot of options for those of us who graduated in that cohort. I was really lucky to get an opportunity to work through the presidential management fellow program. And that brought me to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, where I spent about four years in a couple different roles, which I'm happy to talk about a little bit later, but both on the policy side and the operational side. Um, and you know, I think it was a great lesson in applying a lot of the work that we had done in graduate school to the real world. When the presidential transition happened, I had an opportunity to go back to local government, which was in my kind of earlier career roots, and was able to join the administration of Mayor Muriel Bowser here in Washington, D.C., and work on a number of social safety net and anti-poverty programs in the nation's capital, which has led me to the spot I am today, which is, uh, you know, really feeling like I'm part of a team that's contributing to supporting the community who's been hit the hardest by the the COVID-19 pandemic, both on the health side and the economic side. And, uh, you know, it's been a ride. And I think I I have uh, really benefited from my affiliation with, with Princeton this whole time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into that a bit later. But before we do, can you tell us a little bit about what you do as chief of staff for the Department of Human Services and then sort of of everything you're working on, what are you feeling the most passionate or excited about right now? Sure. I think the role of chief of staff is, um, well, it's the best job I've ever had. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Yeah, in part because every day is different. You know, first and foremost, I would say my responsibilities are to my team. So I get to work with a group of about 20 folks every day who are just incredible public servants and doing everything from managing our strategic communications to legislative affairs to our outreach function, you know, keeping the, the kind of trains running in our front office at a very large department. I think more broadly, the the job of a chief of staff in general can fall into a couple buckets. You know, you're supposed to support your principal. So in my case, I work with a really amazing director named Laura Zeilinger, and I'm there for advice, which can be incredibly high level 
you know, policy decisions one day, and then the next day it's to remind her to not be late to her next appointment. You know, you also are organizationally in a position to see across a lot of silos. So I think the probably the, you know, aside from working with my team, the best part of my job is being able to connect really great work that's happening between different silos within our department or to other departments and other groups so that our staff can be successful. The, the role is really one that you get to be at the decision-making table and in the room, but you're, you're really there in service of making everyone else's job easier. And I find that to be incredibly fulfilling. Well, maybe I'll jump ahead, actually. One of the questions I had for you was about decision-making and being at the table. And since you just mentioned that, maybe I can jump in here with, you know, what do you think are the most effective strategies today at getting around the table and forming a consensus? Because I'm sure you're doing a lot of that in your work. So what do you see? It's a great question. So I think if you're making a decision or you're part of a group that's making a decision, I think the first thing you need to ask is who should inform that decision? So do we have the right people around the table? If so, great. Whose perspectives do we need to bring in to inform that group decision? And that should be the, the baseline. I think you know a few other things that I've learned in the current role that I have is the importance of pulling the thread through to the client experience. So if you're working in government and you're running programs and you're making a decision about funding or a policy direction or um, you know in a crisis trying to figure out how to respond, I think having people who really are focused on what impact your decisions will have operationally and from a policy lens through the various mechanisms that have to implement the decision until it gets to the end user. It's a really valuable skill set. And, and I've learned a lot from my boss who's very good at that. And I think I think that can be a, 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 a it's not always as valued because it can be really hard to project what that might look like. I think the other thing I would say is people are going to disagree and, and you asked about consensus and it's it's so important to put yourself in other people's shoes because I think we all have blind spots and we all bring you know, a certain experience to the table, the more that we can understand what that experience is of the people around us, the better the decision-making will be. And, you know, one of my other questions is sort of what you've learned over the course of your career. I'm guessing that's one of them, but is there more that you would add in terms of just skills and strategies? I mean, you've had a lot of positions. What what would you say you've learned? Oh, wow. Um, how much time do you have? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, I would say one thing is that, you know, you're just, you never stop learning. Like I think um, I've been in my current for, for almost four years and I'm amazed at what I don't know still and what I'm kind of every day reminded of that I don't know. So there's an interesting pivot that I think happens with a lot of us in the years after coming through a, a program like the Princeton School of Public International Affairs. And, and a big part of that transition is going from early career or early mid-career to like later mid-career type roles. And that often involves management and, you know, a high level of responsibility. I have classmates who are you know, elected officials. It's really, it's really been amazing to see. I think when you get to that point in your career, what you, what I have learned is that people hire you and in your success is much more closely tied to soft skills than I expected. So it's really your ability to ask good questions, your ability to empower people around you your ability to build consensus and related to, to your, your earlier question. Uh, you know, one thing that I think I take with me everywhere is, is trying to remind myself to assume positive intent, because I think so often people approach 
a table with some sort of oppositional orientation because they they see it as a negotiation. And, and I think, you know, a soft skill that you, that I have found really valuable is to negotiate with positive intent. Oh, that's a beautifully put. I mean, talking about the school, since you referenced it there, what made you apply and, and say yes to the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs? And then in what ways do you feel like it prepared you um, in some of those soft skills you're talking about in, in other ways? Sure. So I fell in love with the the kind of opportunity to be in a place where you could focus on the cohort and the relationships of your classmates, dig in to relationships with professors and staff. And, you know, I was looking at a lot of large programs that have excellent reputations. And I just was so, it was really compelling to be on campus and to meet the people who were opting into the school. And it felt, I mean, it, this is super cheesy, but it felt destined. It just, it felt right. And, you know, part of that model, the the real, the small cohort model, and in some ways the limited options with the classes that you take was one of the, the almost accidental best parts of the program, because you're not really able to specialize as much as you think you might want to. And what you get from that is you're in classes, you're not taking a housing class with a bunch of other people who are coming from housing finance. You're taking a housing class with people who bring a whole bunch of different sets of experience to the classroom and therefore to the conversation. And that's what policy is like in the real world, especially, you know, in the jobs that I've done. You're, I am in a room with people who bring a bunch of different experiences and perspectives. And I think the learning environment and the social environment at the school really empowered that. And and I think you get to kind of marinate in your classmates' ideas and experience in a way that would be a little bit more difficult in other environments. Definitely. I've heard that from many students, many alums before as well. I guess thinking a little bit more tactically, what are some of the skills that you gained at the school that you still employ in your work today? Sure. So I, I you know, Princeton was really high on my list because of the rigorous quant sequence. You know, that's like a talking uh, yeah. of the program, but I, I, I really had that experience and I, I was B track and, you know, which is the, the kind of uh, more basic quantitative level courses, which really focus on the real world application of, of, of data, whether it's, you know, economics or statistics. And that has served me incredibly well, more than anything, just being able to credibly talk about data. You know, I'm not do I'm not running regressions and, and I never really do. That would not be the best and highest use of my skill set. But <laughs> um, I am looking at data as part of a decision making process. And the skills that I learned at the school were able to give me uh, both the confidence and the ability to analyze in real world situations. So I, I can't overemphasize that enough. It was it was incredibly impactful. And then, you know, I think there's also these fundamentals around writing concisely and just translating your communication style to a policy environment. That was incredibly helpful. Um, and then the third thing I'll say, which I know, I know I've talked about with my classmates before, uh, 502, the psychology of public policy course comes up all the time, right? That's kind of, they told us that would happen at the time. And and I can certainly validate that it, that it has. Um, and I had, you know, read a lot of behavioral economic books and, and, you know, wasn't entirely sure at the time what I was going to get out of it. But when I think about the architecture of choice and other concepts that you really spend some time with in that course, it is, it, they just pop up everywhere. And so I would say 502 has been something that I've really <laughs> valued my in my post school years. 
that course does come up again and again from people. And I think we're one of the only schools that really has a course like that, if I'm remembering that correctly, which makes us pretty unique. Can you talk a little bit about how the school trains students to be policy leaders? I mean, we have so many people out there in leadership roles. How do you think the school, you know, including yourself, how do you think the school got them there and helped them? So I would reiterate that ability to be with a bunch of different people and not overly specialize in a particular policy area. It gives you a a cross-cutting policy lens that I think is increasingly required of tough decision-making and kind of leadership roles in, in certainly in the space of domestic policy that I work in. So, you know, my, my department, uh, one of, one of our main functions is to administer TANF and SNAP. You can't talk about TANF and SNAP without thinking about the housing and security that the same households and those programs are facing. And, you know, when you're thinking about what cash assistance can do for a family that is experiencing homelessness, it looks a lot different than what that same level of cash assistance can do for someone who's stably housed. And I think the more that you're forced to just think that way all the time, these things are in some ways obvious and and they're self-evident. So often I think we train leaders in silos that, um, you know, you're the housing expert at the table, you're the food insecurity expert at the table, you're the welfare expert at the table. And that's, that's not how I've found, especially at the local level, that anything works. So I certainly think that I think that that's a big part of it. The other thing I'd say, you know, about the people, this is true of my classmates, the people in the classes above me and below me, the professors and the staff. I mean, you are surrounded by leaders and to a T, those people are leading by example and giving you ideas for what, it, you know, how you communicate, how you tackle hard problems, how you manage a crisis. I mean, I think a lot of the leadership skills I've developed in the past couple of years have been both from knowing the people I know through my graduate experience and also being able to call them and say, hey, what would you do here? <laughs> you know, you, you, you're you yeah. further in my career than I am, or I know that you've dealt with this challenge. I know that you're really good at crisis comms. I know you're really in the weeds of this policy. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've done that. And, and that's, those that to me is like the best leaders ask other leaders for advice all the time. And my, my cohort and the alumni network has enabled that for me. I love that. That's so true. The network is, is really strong and terrific. I mean, I want to go back to something you said about getting different people at the table from that represent different areas. I mean, I think we're kind of seeing that right now with COVID-19 where we have both a sort of an economic crisis as well as like a healthcare crisis. So I've been asking everyone on the show what they think the most pressing policy of policy issue of today is obviously COVID-19 is one of them, but are there any others that you would add that, you know, different policy issues that are on your mind right now? It's a great question. I I touched a little bit on the interconnectedness of different uh, interventions or or programs. Um, So I think in the domestic policy space, um, what I've learned this past year has just been to step back and look at how these these programs, which we think are supposed to work one way, how they land in place and how they land within a household and how they land in the broader context that a, a family or a household might be in. And so that includes some of the stuff I was talking about earlier, you know, making sure that you understand the connection between, you know, social safety net programs or food insecurity programs and housing. The idea that housing is healthcare, which, is, which has been part of homeless services in that field for a long time, I think is, is catching on more broadly. And I think the national conversation has really started to think about some of those things in a connected way. And then especially 
how they impact communities of color and what kind of all of this historical inequity has done to certain communities and how that weathers your ability to be economically resilient in times like this, how it enables you to, to stay healthy in a time like this. And so, you know, I don't know if that's a little bit of a, a punt on the question, but I think just looking at totally rethinking how we evaluate success for, for programs and how we think about programs working together in the same communities is has been the biggest lesson of the pandemic for me. And and one thing I really hope, and I've, I've heard, been a part of and heard conversations for months now is, you know, how do, how do we support communities in a way that doesn't go back to what we had in 2019, but really re-envisions how they work. And I think that's the biggest charge facing us right now. Well, we're just about out of time, Larry, but I I do want to ask, you know, because we're hoping that prospective and current students are listening to this and many of them might be thinking about getting into, you know, getting into their jobs after this, or maybe some people are thinking about switching careers or switching positions. What advice would you give to people entering the workforce today or people looking to make a switch? The advice I'd give for someone coming right out of grad school right now would be to shed the idea of a perfect job. (laughs) I think that we we put a lot of pressures on ourselves to have, you know, the right combination of mission alignment, you know, financial reimbursement. It feels like we should, you know, have everything right where we want it. And I think we actually often don't know what we like until we get into a job and figure out um, trial and error. And and a lot of people have done that before. They've, They've come through the program, of course. But I think there's an ability to learn a lot from taking a job that isn't everything you envisioned. And and I think sometimes people get hung up in the like, well, I should be able to get a different role or I should be at a different salary level. And I think that that's, I think that limits people a lot. So no such thing as a perfect job, you know, use the network. I, I think that's probably a refrain you've heard a lot in, in these. There's, you know, not really a group of people that like to hear from others in their cohort as much as us. And that that's something that benefits all of us in the long term. I Again, I've, I have gone to advice from people who I've only met when they've come to me for advice. And I think that that's, that circle is, is really important, especially as we get further in our careers. It doesn't matter if you're five years older or five years younger. I mean, you're going to be a leader wherever you are. And, and we have so much to learn from each other. And the last thing, The best professional decisions I have made have been going with my gut. I think listening to what drives you and what gets you excited is going to land you in a place where you're doing work that you're passionate about and work that you're passionate about is probably going to be work that you're better at because you're really invested and thoughtful around it. And so maybe it's an interesting companion to the piece of advice for don't look for the perfect job. Like I think if you're drawn to a space there's probably something there and you should run with it. I love that too. That's great. Like I said, we're about out of time, but anything else you want to add before we wrap up today? I I can't really think of anything. I think we've covered everything that I could possibly think of, but I just want to thank you for doing this. I've really enjoyed reading and listening to some of the other contributions. So it's a, um, it's a really great thing for the community. Well, we thank you for joining us. It's a, it's a pleasure. And thanks again, Larry, for joining us on Changemakers. Thanks, Rose. Have a great day. You've been listening to Changemakers, a podcast produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. This show is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Rose Huber. Listen and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you find podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.